Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome, everyone, to the Spiritual Forum. So glad you're here with us today. Oh, I want to remind you of the Whole Planet Spirituality Retreat at Unity Village that I'm co-sponsoring with Compassion Consortium, October 28th, 29th, 30th, and 31st this year, and it's going to be at Unity Village. And it is a retreat that's very, very cool. You're going to learn about Whole Planet Spirituality and how we can be in communion with all of the planet, including the animals. And it's just going to be very delightful. This is an annual retreat in honor of Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, who are the founders of Unity, who preached and taught and lived a life of nonviolence towards all beings in their, their early days. So we're trying to kind of bring that, that uh, teaching back to Unity. So let me introduce you to my guest today, Gary Beckwith. Gary is a solar system engineer, certified hypnotist, and writer. Out of personal interest, he studied comparative religion, focusing on his research on similarities. Searching for a simple book that outlined the common teachings shared by the world's major religions and unable to find one, he decided to write one. And it's called The Message That Comes From Everywhere, Exploring the Common Bonds of the World's Religions. The book's a useful tool in learning about spirituality and promoting peace from an inclusive standpoint. Gary continues to be active in the solar energy field. He's the driver and organizer of The Solar Bus, an educational project that teaches about solar energy, and is the director of Solar Energy Education and Demonstration, also known as SEED, a nonprofit organization that installs solar systems on medical clinics and schools in developing nations like Haiti. Very cool background, engineer, hypnotist, writer, <laughs> and a, a studier of the world religions. Welcome, Gary. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to it. One, one distinction I'd like to make from the introduction is I think there's a little slight difference between a hypnotist and a hypnotherapist. Okay. When I, I went to school to learn to be a hypnotherapist, there's definitely a lot of overlap. Of course, they both use hypnosis, but people associate hypnotists with like a stage hypnotist that makes people right. think they're a chicken and things like that. <laughs> but hypnotherapy is, is very different. It's the same tool but it's used to help people heal and, and grow and things like that. And so that's the application that I like to use it for. So anyway, thank you for that nice introduction. And that, that nice really introduction that was a little wrong, <laughs> but I'll correct it in the show uh, notes. That's for it, sure. It, I'll, I'll correct it in what's good. published, but I understand. I, I didn't really, I hadn't really conflated hypnotists with the stage, stage person, but I get where you're coming from. So Mm -hmm. I know other hypnotherapists too, so yeah. perhaps we could talk about that. Okay, why don't we start with just you telling your story a little bit. We don't want to spend too much time on it because we want to kind of dig into the world religions yeah. and the other things that you do. But like, how did you how did you go from like engineer to the hypnotherapy and and the interest in world religions? Well, I'll try to give the short version. Yeah. But yeah, actually, your question is very pointed because I was working at a solar energy company, and this is back when. People didn't really have their own computers at home and stuff like that. And when I first started writing my book, it took me a long time because it wasn't like my job or anything I did in my spare time. But I would stay after work and write on the computer that they had there at work because I didn't have one at home. And I would bring all these books and, and notes and stuff that I got from the library when I was doing my research. And I would, 
I was like the only one there at the solar company, like at midnight. And I was like typing away in this computer because I didn't have a computer at home. And that was quite a while ago. But to answer your question, how did it all unfold? It really started out when I was a kid and I was raised Jewish and I was bar mitzvahed and I went to Hebrew school and all that kind of stuff. And but like a lot of people, I think when they're younger, I was a little disillusioned by re- conventional religion. It just didn't seem it didn't resonate with me. It seemed a little far fetched that there was this bearded man up in the sky who was throwing lightning bolts down on people when they did bad things. And one of the aspects of my apprehension about it, I guess, was that, well, there's all these other religions of the world. I mean, why, why would there be so many different religions? If there's like something going on spiritually, it seems like it would apply to everybody. So I, like a lot of people, I sort of rejected religion when I was younger. I kind of threw the baby out with the (laughs) bathwater to say, and just went on with my life. And and, and when I went to school, you know, I learned about science and technology, and, and that seemed a lot more objective to me. Like you, everything that you learn about, you can, you can demonstrate it, you can prove it. And everything that was in religion was just like, you know, something that somebody made up thousands of years ago and wrote this book, and we're just supposed to believe it. So I went on for, you know, that was when I was younger. And then when I went on to college, I, you know, opened my mind a little bit, but I still sort of had this, you know, rejection of religion. And at one point I came to this, I think I might've been in a doctor's office or something like that. And there was this book there called how to meditate. Mm. And I picked up this book and I was like, ah, what's, what's that? I I mean, I heard of meditation. I didn't really know what it was. I thought it was like, you're supposed to like, think of nothing. And I I think when I was a kid, one time me and my friend tried doing it we just couldn't stop laughing every time we we tried to do it. (laughs) So, but I read this book and, you know, it, it talked about meditation from what I would say is a more scientific viewpoint. And it talked about how it, if you meditate, it, it's good for your health. It's good for your, it reduces your blood pressure. It's good for stress reduction and all these different things. And you know, that was a while ago. Now I, doctors tell people to meditate and there's all kinds of books and articles written about all the different benefits of it. So I thought it was kind of interesting. I read this book and it talked about, you know, it's not really thinking of nothing. It's really just focusing on one thing. And as you know, you know, your mind wanders and then you try to bring it back to whatever you're focusing on. And I, I teach a class called Meditation 101. We don't need to get too deeply into that right at this moment. But in the book, it talked about how on the Eastern religions, meditation is really a, a, a major part of the teachings and people meditate every day. Even though the book didn't really get into religion per se, it talked, it did reference that the Eastern religions use meditation a lot. And One of the things that really interested me is it it talked about people who meditate a lot, you know, regularly on a daily basis, that they report this one particular thing that I thought was interesting. And that is that in our normal way of life, we have our five senses and we're looking around and doing things and touching things. And every there's a feeling of separateness and everything is like this and that and you and me and up and down and in and out. And for some reason, according to this book, anyway, when people meditate a lot, they start to develop a feeling of connectedness, of wholeness and unity and oneness and connectedness with everything. It's not everything is separate. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And I read the book and I tried meditating a little bit, but I didn't really get into it that much. 
But I happen to be visiting my parents during the holiday of Yom Kippur, which is the most important holiday for Jews every year. And you always got to go to temple on Yom Kippur. So I went to temple and, but I still had this frame of mind, like, you know, this is not really for me and I'm just going to be a a good son and go to temple with my parents. (laughs) And I I was sitting there holding the prayer book and, you know, kind of looking at it. And I can remember one of the things that people do when they're not, they don't feel really connected at, at church or temple. I think I did is you sort of look to see like how many pages are left (laughs) <laughs> until the end of the service is coming, you know, and you kind of put your finger there and you're like, oh, how many more? And so I, I was like totally in that mode. And but we got to this one prayer, which is the, the most important prayer for all of Judaism. It's called the Shema. And I'll, I can I can say it here in Hebrew, if you don't mind. Sure. It says Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And a lot of times in the prayer book, like it takes up a whole page, even though it's one line, because they really want you to focus on it. And what does it mean? It says, hear, O Israel. And Israel just means like people that are listening. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And I was just looking at the prayer and I noticed the last word where it says one, the word one was capitalized. And I just, it, it just made me wonder, like, why did they capitalize the word one? And I always thought that the prayer was about, there's only one God. Because that's kind of one of the big things that they really, you know, push on you in Judaism. And, but I just started, I was like going like this. And I was like, you know, why, if it said there's, if they wanted to say there's only one God, why wouldn't say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God? There's only one God. It didn't say, it said, (laughs) the Lord is one. And I was like, that's not really the same thing. And the word one is capitalized. And I was just kind of contemplating that. And this, you know, a lot of people say like, you know, there's something in their life that was like a lightning bolt hit them or something like that. Or this was my moment. I was sitting there in temple and I was looking at the word one and literally like the, the page started going like this. And the word one was like right in the middle and I couldn't see anything else. And it occurred to me that the book that I was reading about meditation was talking about how people that meditate feel this oneness and unity and connection with everything. And it just, I don't know, popped in my mind. I said, I wonder if that is the same thing that here we're saying the Lord is one. And these other people who in the Eastern religion are talking about this oneness. And I just, from that moment on, I mean, that was it. I I sat there, I took my finger out of the, the end of the service. I started just randomly leafing through and reading prayers. And I realized that it didn't really say that God is this bearded man up in the sky. Right. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. But it it talked about how, you know, how to be a good person and our responsibility to try to make peace in the world and and some other things that I didn't really pay attention to, like how God is everywhere, not just up in the sky, it's everywhere. So at that point, it just sort of occurred to me that, you know, maybe there's some kind of connection there. And just being the inquisitive kind of person that I was, I, I wanted to pursue it more. So I decided to take a class in my at my local community college in comparative religion and like a lot of comparative religion classes there's a book that you know chapter 1 is christianity and chapter 2 is islam and chapter and it just went through like that and there wasn't really any discussion about you know connections between religions it was just like this is one religion this is another one i found it kind of frustrating and i was always raising my hand and like asking all these questions in the class and the teacher like 
I think he appreciated my, my, my attention because I was sitting in the front row all the time. And anyway, at the end of the class, we were supposed to write an essay, like three or four pages, and it could be about anything that you wanted it to be. Uh, it had to be about some, something about religion. So as you might guess, I decided to write uh, an essay about the commonalities of the world's religions. Because one thing I did find in the book is that, if anything, it talked about differences. You know, it described the religion. It will say, mm-hmm. well, this religion says this and this religion says that. And so that's what I was raising my hand about a lot is, well, didn't this religion say kind of the same thing as this other one? And so I wrote this essay about the commonalities of the world's religions. And what happened was it was supposed to be three or four pages. And, you know, you had to turn it in by the last day of class. And I just, I wasn't anywhere near done when the the class ended. So I had to call up the teacher and tell him, ask him if I could just have a little more time. I was really into this research I was doing, and it's probably going to be a little more than three or four pages. And he said, fine. He said, take whatever, a week or two, and just, you know, call me up when you're ready to send it in. So I did that. And when I felt like it was close enough to something I could submit to the teacher, I did. And he was really impressed. He gave me an A plus for the course and the and the the paper. But I found that I just I I wasn't done. I just I kept I I kept on doing this research, and it started developing into like almost the antithesis of the book that we had in the class, where it was like kind of focusing on the separatenesses and the differences between the religions. And I started to realize that there were a few. I've sort of boiled it down to ten or so ideas or concepts that pretty much all the religions share. I, I want to pause for a second because I don't want to give the impression that like, I'm trying to say that like, they're all exactly the same and there, there should be just one religion in the world or anything like that. What I'm saying is that there's the, the, the most important and core teachings of the religions. There's a lot of similarities and overlaps and enough certainly so that we don't have to be like, fighting and killing each other and having wars over like, you know, which one is right and the other ones are wrong, because I believe we just haven't really focused enough on the similarities and the common bonds. And if we do, we'll see that they're right there before our eyes. And then there isn't really any reason for us to be fighting and killing. In fact, there's a reason for us to be celebrating. So what happened was I just kept writing and I got to the point where like I was looking for I had all these books, you know, one book would be about, you know, Jesus and Buddha, and it would talk about how their similarities between their teachings and another one between this and that, because I was always looking for similarities and I was, and the book would be, you know, like, like this thick and it would be written by scholars. And it was not something that like, you know, the average Joe would, would pick up and, you know, look at, and I wanted to find a book that just boiled it down to, these are, you know, some teachings that all the religions pretty much share in a very simple way without big, long words written by scholars. And I couldn't find the book. So at that point, I realized maybe I'm writing the book that I'm looking for. (laughs) So that's what I decided. I said, there doesn't seem to be such a book, so I'm going to write it. So here it is. I really, again, I found in my research that there's a few common core teachings. We can go through them at some point that all the religions share. And and what I tried to do in the book, and I, I don't, like you said, I, I don't want our discussion to be just about the book. I'm not here to just sell my book, but the, all the religions have these common teachings. So what I did is I didn't want the book to be like, this is Gary Beckwith's, you know, thesis or, you know, lecture about why all the religions 
are, are the same and you should read it and believe what he says. What I tried to do is put the evidence in front of the people and let, let everybody decide in a really simple way. So once I started to, to develop what are these common teachings, for example, God is everywhere. I just said that. I looked through all of the ancient scriptures of all the religions. And, you know, you might say I cherry picked a little bit, but I think that's okay. If it's in there, it's in there. <laughs> so I looked for phrases and statements in the scriptures from all of the religions that supported the idea that God is everywhere and not necessarily this guy up in the sky. And I put them all right side by side. And I asked the reader to just, you know, read them side by side and decide for yourself. Do you, do you think that that really resonates with you? Do you? Is it interesting that they all sort of say the same thing in slightly different words? And I, it's really up to the reader to decide. I'm not trying to convince anybody of anything other than just putting the information out there for people in a really simple way. I tried to make it short enough. I've had a lot of people tell me that they read the whole book in one day. And there's not a lot of big words in there. I try to make it really understandable and straightforward. It's very so accessible. That's how the book came into being. Yeah. As part of my, my research, as I started doing that, I started realizing, you know, it's not just the religions that are saying these things, that science is actually kind of on the verge of, you know, studying and confirming some of these things. And, you know, cutting edge things like quantum physics are, are really opening our minds into, well, I always say that, you know, there's this conception that science and religion are at odds and they're, you know, they're never going to really come together in any way. But in my mind, if science never touches on some of the things that faith has brought us, it would ultimately fail because if it can only tell us things that we can, you know, observe with instruments and things like that, and doesn't answer of any of the really deep questions about who we are and why we're here, then you know, it, it's nice if, it, if we can invent a new kind of coffee maker or something like that from science or something like that. But I would hope, and I, I believe, I mean, I really think it's happening. If you go to a bookstore and look, you look at all the books that are being written now about, you know, quantum physics and things like that, science is being turned on this into the spiritual realm. And a lot of times these physicists, you know, they, they weren't coming there to like study and, 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 try to confirm spiritual things. They're just studying subatomic particles and it forces them to see things in a new way. And they start talking in almost, you know, spiritual and religious terms because they say, hey, the world is not really what we have been telling everybody it right, is all right. this time. It's really something more close to what the books, have, the, the spiritual scriptures have been saying. So there's a whole chapter in there about science and religion. And I just find that in general, there's a lot more overlap if you just take a step back instead of focusing on the differences. Like a lot of things, it's about what you focus on. Yeah. So, and I think, let me just pause and just reflect yes. a little bit on some of this because you've said a lot. First of all, the, the bearded man in the sky is a really good example of the myth of religion. I mean, it's like there is nowhere in the Bible that where there's a bearded man in the sky. And yet, because there are these artistic renditions over the years and in the Renaissance and Middle Ages and whatnot, people equate that with what what religions think about God. And it never there's a lot, there's a lot of things that people think about these sacred texts based on what they've been told or what's been handed down to us that aren't in there at all. 
It's 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 really fascinating. It's very fascinating. God is everywhere in, in the Bible. There's the New Testament. God is love. A lot of different depictions. And what you just said, that if if we what you just said has universal application to everything that's going on, rather than focusing on the differences, if we just step back and see the universalities, we could say that about just about every way that we divide ourselves now. You know, right now we divide ourselves in political parties and races and genders and interests and whatever whatever it is. We can divide ourselves, you know, a million ways. And Lord knows that there's people out there that are trying to keep us divided. But if we if we just apply the same idea that you just said, that if we could just step back and look at our commonalities, just like you did with the world religions, we would see them. We would see things completely differently. I agree completely. Yeah. Very, very interesting. All humans. Yeah, right, right. I I identify with a lot of your background. I'm an engineer too. I don't know if if I told you that or if you saw that. No. But I, I'm an engineer too, and I I worked in engineering for a long time, and uh-huh. then I ended up a uh, you know uh, well I I was a barista for a couple of years. That was my that was my bridge my bridge vocation, <laughs> and then I ended up a minister interfaith and unity minister and. When I was in the interfaith seminary, what we did is we studied every world religion. Um, we immersed ourselves in it for like a month. And so we did spiritual practices and you know, researched and just experienced and did the kinds of prayers and meditations and all. And just to kind of and go, go to temple or go to synagogue or go to, yeah, it was very, very interesting going to different churches, going to Baha'i temple and whatnot. And, and. I, I don't know. Do you think it's like the part of the human condition that we look for differences? I mean, I do. I yeah. think it, it's a it's a natural phenomenon that people tend to notice. This is probably a bad example, but if you meet somebody and they have like a pimple on their face, like you're gonna, that's gonna be the first thing that you notice. Yeah. You know, and you know, it, it's an easy way to compare things is to look at the differences. So yeah. I think it it takes initiative to to take that step back and say wait there's another way of looking at things because i i just think it's, it's it's a natural reaction to focus on the differences you know if somebody has a different color skin than you're used to seeing you're going to notice that but you like with a lot of things you have to look deeper and well and yet i i don't know that there's anything wrong with noticing because it's what you do with it you know it's like because I, I, I really fully am standing here saying, we are individuals. I'm an individual. I'm different from you. I want to be different from you. I like that I'm different from you. I like who I am and what I am. I like the way I express myself. And I think the way you express yourself is really cool. So we don't have to be the same, but we can, but we have this, we also have these commonalities in terms of, you know, all humans want to be loved. All humans want to make sense out of their lives. All humans want to have meaning and our purpose. So we, we can stand as individuals and also not not be so focused on our differences, but also recognize our commonalities, but allow ourselves also to be unique. Totally agree. I think it's like it's a balance, you know. Yeah, we, we should do that with the religions too. So God bless the Buddhists and God bless the Hindus and the Muslims and the Baha'i and the Christians and the Catholics and you know, the Taoists. And you know, they all have some beautiful, at least I believe. They all have some beautiful way of expressing the divine. And they also I, have a lot of mythology around them. Each one has their mythology. So we don't yes. want to, we, you know, I, I think, I think that we don't want to say, well, they're all the same because you know that they're not all the same, but wow, the messages, it's so interesting how the message, the message being 
you know, having a commonality is really the most important thing. So like you say, there's no reason to fight. <laughs> there's no reason to say I'm better. You know, maybe what it, there's a reason though to, you know, reach our hands across, you know, across the aisle and go, tell me more about you. Tell me more about, you know, like you shared the prayer, you shared that Jewish prayer. How beautiful is that? You know, most people don't know that unless they're Jewish. And it is very interesting that you can, you know, you can share that and we can kind of go, that's cool. You know, what else is cool about your religion? (laughs) Oh, there's a lot of cool things. I think about all religions. Yeah. I I think it's also helpful to just kind of look back and, and try to get an understanding of how and why we came to this feeling like things are the the religions are separate. And I mean, it's very simple. I mean, the world is a big place and it's only been, you know, the last hundred or maybe a little bit longer than that years that people could travel across continents easily and communicate across continents easily. So for the vast majority of our history, we we've, not only were we separated, you know, our religions were separated, but our societies were se- separated. So whenever a society exists, you know, they're going to develop some kind of spirituality, religion, mythology, and on their own. Right. And at a, and a different societies developed at different times, too. So different times and different places. And it's only been in the last hundred years or so that we've been able to I mean, we have the internet, you can fly across continents, you know, like it's nothing anymore. And I think it's amazing to now that that we can see how these, all these religions developed at different times, different places with different different languages. It's amazing that we can, we can see how, even though they developed it completely separately, they have so much in common in what they say. And it, it's kind of like if you're at a trial, they call it corroborating evidence. You know, mm. if one person says something and another person says the same thing and they didn't really know each other and they verified independently, the jury takes that into account and it gives it a lot of weight. So if, if you're the jury trying to decide what's going on in this world, am I just like a, a little a blob and when I die, that's it? Or is there something else going on? The fact that all these religions kind of contribute in a similar way to the answers to these questions, in my mind, is corroborating evidence. And it it gives more credence to the ideas that you would get if you just focused on one religion. So I think it's really exciting to Mm -hmm. be able to, you know, different religions focus on different things. And so, for example, like I said in the the book about meditation that I read, uh, Eastern religions focus a lot on meditation and they use meditation a lot. So let's say, you know, you're raised Christian or Jewish, but you know, you get to the point where you want to learn about meditation. It's okay to, you know, learn something about Eastern religion. It's not like a a sin or something like that. Yeah. Because those people have been, been studying it for thousands of years and, you know, we can all benefit from a little bit of cross transformation information. Yeah. And I mean, Obviously, it's happening. We have, you know, our our country is a melting pot, and there there's a church of every religion, you know, in every city. So right. I think it's all a good thing. I think it's still evolving, but I think the place where we're getting is along the lines of just realizing that we're all one people, and all these religions developed at different times, different languages. We could not expect them to use the same words because they have different languages. But it's right. pretty amazing that they basically have the same concepts and ideas. 
It really so, is. And, and I want to get into some of that, but I also want to talk, say something about science first before we get into some of those commonalities. But I've always kind of thought that science is a little behind religion. Like it's like, like religion will, will speak to the essence of God. And then science, people in science are like, there is no God, there is no God. And then they're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> look at this. This must be God. And that's a, that's a very, very short way of putting it. But I don't see any difference between science and religion, except for I think science kind of comes at it and discovers it a little bit, a little bit later well, and, and puts equations around it or puts, you know, some some scientific knowledge around it that that defines it more clearly or that just asks questions like you say in in the quantum field but so whenever i run into my atheist friends who are all pro science and anti god i'm like hmm. <laughs> what's, well, what's the difference <laughs> I, I agree completely with what you're saying but i have an answer or a question okay. for that because the science is based on the scientific method right right and the scientific method says you have a theory and then you collect data and the data either proves or disproves the theory and you draw a conclusion. So a lot of those people who call themselves atheists, if you really apply the scientific method towards the question of, is there a God? Do we have souls and things like that? Let's just say there is no data. Let's say we, we can't prove it or disprove it. If you apply the scientific method to that, the answer should be, I don't know. We don't have any data to, to investigate. There should not be a conclusion that there is no God. That, that's unscientific. The, the more scientific, perhaps, answer is agnosticism, which is basically, we don't know. We can't prove it. And it, it's not my favorite answer, but it makes a lot more sense than atheism, because atheism is, is no different than just having blind faith in believing in something without right. any evidence. You're just denying something without any evidence. So a true scientist should be open-minded. Albert Einstein said the mind is like a parachute. It works best when it's open. And he said a lot of things that were pretty spiritual, I think as well. So I, I challenge people sometimes when they say, you know, I'm, I'm scientifically minded and I'm atheist and things like that, because I don't think atheist is really a very scientific viewpoint. I love that. That's a really, really excellent point because I've been approaching it in another way, it's not that effective. I, I've, I've been more like, like, look at the flower. How can you, how can you not see that there's some divine presence under that? I mean, my goodness. Or look at the way our bodies work. I mean, so I've been doing that, but that's not that effective. I like the idea that, but saying being so sure there is no God has not really applied the scientific method. It's not. Yeah. That's really, really good. Very helpful. It's really the same thing as what they're accusing, you know, faith-based religion people of yes, doing it. Blindly yes. following some book or what some preacher says without any evidence. It's the exact same thing in the opposite direction. Yeah, so, and we do find that. We find that when people are so anti-something, it's just the opposite of expression, the same thing. Right. Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. So like for people who are pretty new to this, who are listening, what yep. would you say, you know, what, what are some of the things you would say are these commonalities between these different world religions? Okay, good. Thanks for asking. So in addition to my book being very short and easy to read, I boiled it down to one page. I have this document called the 10 teachings shared by world's religions. By oh, the world's nice. religions. And so you don't even have to pay any money for it. You can just look at it online. You can print it out and, you know, 
put it on the desk at work or whatever. The first one is there's one God and that, that goes, it's all over. I mean, I don't have to right. get too deep into all of these, but with each of these, I'll probably have a comment or two. Uh-huh. So the one thing that people always say when you talk about, oh, there's one God, and we all realize that, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, we call them the monotheistic religions. That's pretty much a given. But people always say, oh, but Hinduism has many gods. And so that's a reason to kind of reject the idea that the world's religions have, you know, commonalities, because that's one of the biggest questions. Is there one God or many gods? If you actually study Hinduism, hopefully you'll agree with me. I've talked to people who are, are Hindu, and I've read some books about Hinduism. And I'd say, you know, I'm not an expert on, on any of it this stuff. I'm a regular guy like like anybody else. I know a little bit about a lot of things. And sometimes I just like to talk to people to get my information. So I've talked to Hindus and I've read a few books about Hinduism. And yes, there are many gods and goddesses, but they're all considered aspects or facets of a central god who quite often is referred to as Brahman. Right. But we could say that there's different sects of Hinduism who might have a different name for what is that one thing that brings them all together. But they they wholeheartedly will tell you that, you know, all of these are aspects of the one God. So that's my my pushback on the, the one God in Hinduism argument that I often get. The next one is God is everywhere. So we talked about the misconception that God is this bearded man up in the sky I always think about how, I mean, that is so prevalent in our society today. <laughs> people like, talk about it on the internet. I see it on Facebook all the time. <laughs> even people who don't really necessarily believe in God or right. think that God is up in the sky, they still, like the, the example I think of a lot is like, if you ever watch sporting events, like a lot of times when somebody scores a touchdown or hits a home run or something, like they look up into the sky and they they thank God. and I found in my research, there isn't really very much in any of the scriptures that says God is up in the sky or a bearded man or anything like that. I don't really know where it came from. Do you? I think Uh, it probably came from artists. I really do. I think it probably came from like Da Vinci or Michelangelo or some of these famous artists. That's how they depicted him. So I'll share just a quote or two, because that's what my book is, is quotations collated together along a certain idea. It says right in the Bible, I fill the heaven and the earth. So it kind of contradicts the, the man up in the sky. And in Hinduism, it says the whole world is Brahman. So there you go. We don't have to spend too much more time on that. All the religions basically say that God is everywhere. And I'm going to skip to the number four, because if God is everywhere, that means God is in the trees. God is in the sky. God is in the earth. God is in the rocks. and at some point, you're going to get to the point where, whoa, wait a minute. If God is in all those things, that means God is inside me uh-huh. too. And that's pretty huge to, to think that like God is inside of you. But all the religions, basically, they, they tell us that God is inside of us. And it's a pretty amazing thing. And so in the Bible, it says, we know that he dwell in us because he has given us of his spirit. In the Bhagavad Gita, it says, God dwelleth in all hearts. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. That's one of my favorite quotes of Jesus. So we're kind of burning off misconceptions. So we got past the point where God is up in the sky and God is everywhere. It's inside of us. Now, here's the next one, the existence of the soul. Uh All the religions have 
some reference to there's there's like an aspect of our being that is beyond our physical body. And we could say it survives death. It's beyond space and time. And it's quite often referred to as the soul. In the Bible, in the book of Matthew, it says, fear not them which are able to kill the body, but not able to kill the soul. Right there. You can look it up. And it's pretty, I don't think I probably have to go into Hinduism. We all know that Hinduism talks about reincarnation and things right. like that and, and the soul. And so that's the first four. Here's the next one. Spiritual knowledge is accessible to everyone. And so there, there's, we get back to, we talked about agnosticism, which is when you think that like, you can't really attain any spiritual knowledge and you just have to wait until you die. And that's when you're going to find out everything. Well, it turns out that all the religions basically tell you that if you pursue spiritual knowledge, that you will attain some knowledge of some of these things. It won't be just like reading a book, third person thing. You can actually know it and feel it. So it says right in, I think the same prayer book that I was reading with my parents, it says, all who dwell on earth may find you. And Muhammad said, seek knowledge from the cradle to the grave. And Krishna said, true knowledge can only be attained by a human being. Hmm. Okay, we'll move on to the next one. And this is a big one. There's a lot of names for God in, in the Hebrew Bible. There's, I've heard people say there's seven, there's 11. I don't know how many different names for God there are. There, there's some of the names are like not even pronounceable. They, you just have to like skip over that word when you get to it, or that there's like this way to pronounce it, but it's, you're supposed to know that it's not really the correct pronunciation. But one of the things, one of the times where God's name comes up is when Moses is at the, up on the mountain with the burning bush and God is giving him the 10 commandments. And, and Moses says, well, wait a minute here. Can I ask you a question, God? Can you tell me what your name is? Because if I'm going to go down there and give all these people these tablets and tell them these Ten Commandments, they're going to ask me what your name is. And do you remember what God said? God said, "I am that I am." Tell the people that I am that I am sent you. And it sounds kind of strange, and it's something like it could take maybe a lifetime to ponder. What does that mean? I am that I am. But we're told that that is one of the names for God. Now, it also happens to be that in Hinduism, there's this phrase, I am that I am. It's a mantra that people, when you're meditating, you repeat this, not in English, it doesn't say I am that I am. Again, all these societies develop in different times, different languages. The word is soham, and it means literally, I am that I am, and it's considered one of the names of God. So even though we have different languages, we actually use the same name same terminology. for God. Yeah. Yep. Here's another, this is a real easy one, having compassion and respect for everyone. And, and then basically, you know, morals like, like, don't lie, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. There's this thing that we're all familiar with called the Ten Commandments. And there's another one called the Buddha's Precepts, which in my book, it, I actually made a little table where I list the two next to each other. And it's amazing. It's mind boggling. The almost word for word, like six out of 10 are the exact same thing. You know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't covet. And so it's another very strong commonality that they all basically have very similar teachings about how to basically be a good person and stay out of trouble. And so, so the next one is that all of humanity is actually united. So even though I don't like to be too critical, but like if, if, if you go to some churches today, you might hear people talking about how, you know, 
we're not united. And those other people are the problem. Right. And but if you look in the scriptures, um, there's all kinds of, of quotes. Like here's one from the book of Acts. God hath made one blood of all nations that dwell upon the face of the earth. There you go. It doesn't get any more simple than that. And from the Jewish prayer book that I was reading in temple, all people are your children, whatever their belief, whatever their shade of skin. And lastly, peace and nonviolence. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be known as the children of God. And there's lots more quote. I, I was raised Jewish and it, you open up any prayer book. And there, there's so many prayers about peace. There's songs about peace and how it's really our duty to try to promote peace in the world. So there you go. It's very, yeah. pretty simple. There's eight or 10 concepts that I think are, are deeply ingrained in all the world's religions. And it doesn't take a scholar to, to see it. And I just tried to lay it out in a really simple way so people could just look at it and decide for themselves if they agree. Great. Thank you for sharing all that. I think... I think all those are, they're all like tenets that help people to make, make sense out of their lives and also to have a, a society that works. I think what happens with, with some sacred scripts is when they go into the story and God told this tribe to go kill that tribe. And I know that a few religions have those things and it's like, okay, yeah. yeah. And I know in unity, we're, we're trained to look at the, those stories metaphysically. We're trained to look at those as aspects of ourselves and look at it metaphorically and the, all the different characters are parts of ourselves or it, it was part of our spiritual journey and all of that. So I, 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 I do that kind of naturally, but I think people get stuck on that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But God told this tribe to go kill those people and they did it. And then he said this and he said that, and he said that, and, you know, I don't know. Sometimes I think there's kind of a, there's kind of a values, moral, just general principles aspect to all these sacred scripts, sacred texts. And then there's kind of this story thing that I think people kind of told, and I think they're kind of intermingled. And then people say, yeah, they'll discount all of religion because of some, some aspect of some story. I, I agree completely. Yeah. I mean, there's also stories about how we're supposed to like slaughter animals and, right. and do all kinds of things like that. And so I think it's important to, to remind ourselves that, you know, the Bible was just written a long time ago. Right. Today in our world, you know, we don't slaughter animals anymore. So it's important for us to realize for sacrifice. That, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, correct. We don't sacrifice animals and we don't punish people the same way that we used to and things like that. Right. So the cultural context that that right. It's important for us to realize that uh, like all things, they, they change over time. And those teachings were appropriate back then, you know, perhaps. But well, yeah, and also not... people, it also may be that people do this all the time. They do it now. You know, well, why'd you do that? Well, God told me to. Really? Right. <laughs> so how do we know that some of those stories weren't told that way? <laughs> right. Yes. So what I tried to do in, in my research is, like, like you said, there's a lot of mythology and stories and things like that. I tried to focus mostly on the direct quotations from, for example, you know, Jesus and and Moses and things like that. Mm -hmm. And because there's a lot of stories and you can interpret the stories. You know, you mentioned the, the metaphysical interpretation of things. I have this really cool book called the Metaphysical Bible Dictionary. You probably yeah. have seen well, it I think too. It was probably it was probably published from by Unity. Is it published yes. by Charles yeah. Fillmore? Yeah. It's, it's right on my bookshelf yeah. over there. Right. Charles and Fillmore, co-founder of Unity, wrote that. It's it, pretty amazing. 
it's awesome because yeah. it, you can just read the Bible and you get whatever you can come to like, why does it say to sacrifice animals or, or some, and you can just look it up and it's like, Oh, I could see that. It's a, it's a different way of yeah. reading the Bible. Every so like, word ha- has some symbolic meaning. So the word sacrifice means something an animal means something. animals usually means your thoughts. And so, you know, so sacrifice probably means surrender. So it means really actually metaphorically, metaphysically surrender your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's brilliant. The metaphysical Bible dictionary. Yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. So you, know, you said you wanted to go over a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah. I, I was just going to pivot do there. Okay. I do. No, I really do because I, my husband asks all the time, I said, like, where did the Dead Sea Scrolls go? And then we did, we watched some sort of a documentary on it not long ago. And it's like, why is it, why don't we know more about this? You know, why is it this out? And right. why is it this common knowledge? And I was fascinated by it. And I, I, so why don't you just say what you, what you know, we can talk about it. Well, again, I like to just preface, you know, I'm not an expert on the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I, I studied them as part of my research of my book. And so within that context, let's just say that the Dead Sea Scrolls, well, first of all, they were discovered in the 1940s, I think 1945. And there were a bunch of books and scrolls that somebody buried a long time ago. It took them a while to figure out exactly what they were. And yeah, I don't think like every single little piece of scroll has has been released at this point. But I think right. for the most part, we know what they are and who had them. So I think the conventional wisdom is that they were held by a group of Jews called the Essenes. Mm-hmm. And so around the time of Jesus, there were basically three groups of Jews called the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Interestingly, there's nothing in the Bible about the Essenes. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are mentioned lots and lots of times, but we didn't really, we knew that the Essenes existed, but we didn't have any of their their books or their teachings or anything like that until the Dead Sea Scrolls appeared almost 2,000 years after they were buried. So why were they buried? It starts out with the Romans who were trying to basically conquer the world. And, you know, they came and overtook the area that we now call Israel and they trashed the temple. And, you know, there's still one wall there now. We know all that story. And they tried to kill all the Jews and all that kind of stuff. So the Essenes buried the Dead Sea Scrolls at that time, because they knew that one of the things the Romans did is they, you know, burned all the books and all that kind of stuff. Book burning. 300 years <laughs> We've later, done that before. <laughs> yeah. 300 years later, when, and this is a whole nother side story, 300 years later, the Bible was codified. Mm-hmm. And that again was the Romans. There's a lot of book burning there too. <laughs> right. And a whole nother library of books that was discovered in the 1940s also came out of that. And we have to probably include that in the discussion, but let's start with the Essenes and the the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls basically reveal that the Essenes were this sect of of Jews who basically were mystical. And they did things like they they meditated and they lived kind of apart from society. And I I wouldn't say that they practiced statism. But they, you know, they were very spiritually focused. They didn't engage in, you know, commerce and things like that. And there are many who have theorized, you know, there's a period of Jesus's life that is kind of missing from the story. There's some Mm -hmm. years where people don't know exactly where he was. And there are some teachings in the Dead Sea Scrolls that are very, very close to some of the teachings of Jesus. 
And there's some storylines of, you know, James had a brother and, and things like that. And there's some possible references to Jesus in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they basically reveal that there was a, the sect of, of Judaism that was very mystical. And some of the teachings, again, that Jesus spoke of seem to have come from mm-hmm. the, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essenes. So fast forward 300 years when they were codifying the Bible. And again, the Romans were running this whole show. They had the, the councils of Ni- Nicaea and Constantinople where they decided what is going to be in the Bible. And why were they doing this? Is because they were trying to incorporate Christianity as the state religion. And at the time, there were all different views of like, who was Jesus? What did he, what did he say? What did, what did his teachings mean to us? And there was this group of people called the Gnostics. And that's G-N-O-S-C-I-C-S, S-T-I-C-S. Mm-hmm. And they had this one viewpoint and that was that Jesus was a great teacher. He was basically like us, that he found the Christ within him and that, that we too could learn from his teachings and that we can find the Christ within us. And the other view was that Jesus was the only son of God and every word he ever spoke was divinely inspired. And if you just believe that one thing, then you're going to go to heaven. And so that is really the storyline that the councils accepted and they rejected the Gnostics and the idea that Jesus was a great teacher and one like us. And again, they burned all the books that, that said everything otherwise and killed all the people. And But the Gnostics buried their books too. And it's pretty incredible that I think it's been about two years apart from each other that the Nag Hammadi Library that the Gnostics held 300 years after Jesus were found uh, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And they, they, they tell the same story, really. And that is that Jesus got some of his teachings from the Essenes. This is what I believe just from my research. And as 300 years went by, even though most of the Essenes were killed, they kind of evolved into the Gnostics who were following this teaching that you know, if you live a, a wholesome life and, and, you know, do all the things that Jesus said, like at the Sermon on the Mount, that you can be a spiritual person, you can attain spiritual knowledge and find the Christ within you. The Romans burned and buried or burned all those books and killed all the people. So up until just recently, we had no idea. You know, there's this one book called the, the Gospel of Thomas yeah. that is referred to in the, you know, the King James Bible, but it's not really in there. And it was, it was found in the Nag Hammadi library. And it contains some of of these teachings that are, I would say, more metaphysical and spiritual. And so why did they do this? Why did they burn all those books that basically, you know, said that Jesus actually learned something from people and it wasn't all divinely inspired? It was just because- It challenged their narrative. (laughs) That is their narrative. (laughs) <laughs> right. And anything that went against the narrative, like it, it would be, you know, a blasphemy yeah. to think that Jesus actually like learned something from a, a book or somebody taught him something. Or he came from a group that was also enlightened or, you know, had really high level teaching. You know, and that's probably why it's just, I mean, even though it's discovered, it's like, why isn't this news from every pulpit and church? I mean, why are we saying, look what the most, the most recent finding says about Jesus? No. No, none of that. None of that is looked at. But it it is fascinating. It's, it's fascinating. very fascinating. And I I would say that the answer to your question is 
it's almost the same thing that it was back at the councils. Like right. it still continues today. Like the conventional churches probably don't still don't want people to think that Jesus was, was, you know, kind of one of us and that he learned from books and people. Well, they, and also the, the Essenes from what I understand, and I'm also not an expert, but I think they were not in favor of the commerce of the temple. They were not in favor of animal sacrifice. I do believe that they were vegetarians. And they were vegetarians. Yeah. These are all the kinds of teachings. When you look at Jesus's life, he freed the animals in the temple. He wanted to shut down the commerce. You know, it really makes sense that he was indoctrinated or learned from or was, was one of them or something very, very similar. And the fact that he always called out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but never, <laughs> never talked about the Essenes. It's, I mean, it, it's all that, you know, all that evidence, you know, pointing exactly. to one thing that he he came from there, or he had many sleepovers there or something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and why it, does that threaten us? I mean, that threatens us. And I guess it threatens Christianity because then, then he wasn't a God being. I mean, I, I, it doesn't make any sense to me because to me, it's like, what does it matter? He, he actually, in my, in my estimation, he manifested the Christ and said, and you can too. So it, like you were saying earlier, that there's no threat about that. That's like, that's, that's like what it, that's, that's really good news, but I guess it's a threat to the power structure. I, I think it is a threat because there's, there's this idea that all you have to believe is that Jesus is the, the, the son of God and you don't really have to believe anything else and that you're going to be saved. And, you know, there's the apostolic creed that you have to say that confirms that. And it's a, it's a threat to the, the whole way of thinking of, let's just say, you know, the Catholic church, you know, the idea that anybody can pursue spiritual knowledge and find the Christ within themselves. And it doesn't take believing in any one particular fact to do that. It, it, it is, I think it is still a threat to the church. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, th I think we see this. I, I, th I think when there's truth, it's a threat to the narrative. It's a threat to the lie. You know, it's like the lie doesn't threaten the truth, but when truth arises and everybody needs to squelch it, or, or when some when some something arises and and then there's a need to squelch that to call it you know they would call it misinformation right. <laughs> you know then then you know ooh ooh that must be truth <laughs> that must be truth because there's no you know if it was a lie it'd be kind of like you know doesn't really threaten me but right. all that all that squelching and book burning that's because the truth needs to be kept from people right yeah I I hope it all comes out I think it's really interesting. I think if it's going to come out, it's because people like you and me are talking about it. Right, right. So, and now everybody who's listening on the podcast, maybe they'll look into it. So, yeah. Um, so, and there's a little chapter that basically summarizes this story that we just went through in my book because I think it's a really important story. And, you know, hopefully people will check it out. Yeah. Like you said. I, I agree. I really like that chapter. In fact, recently I was talking, I had a guest on my podcast who, who was postulating that Jesus, you know, had a lot of people say Jesus went to travel to Europe or something to God, his teachings. Yeah. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe, but it seems that, you know, people, I don't know, you know, it's just, it's, it's more, it, there's, it's more reasonable that he was camping out with the Essenes to me. <laughs> 
Well, it's just somebody has to ask the question is like, why were all of those Essene teachings and the Gnostic teachings removed? Right, right. You know, because those were real people and they even the references to them were removed. And the, the, the logical answer is because it shows, you know, a different picture of Jesus and who he was. And, you know, if some of the things that he said, like in the Sermon on the Mount, are really close to some of the teachings of the Essenes, where he might have spent some time, uh, all the better to me. I don't, I don't think that yeah. that's a, a threat. He, he, was the, he was the messenger of the message. He was an effective messenger. Exactly. Because and, that's the thing of the Essenes, that they were, you know, a separatist right. kind of society. They, they lived separate from, like, you know, like, they didn't engage in commerce and things like that. So Jesus was the person who took these teachings to the people. And it, it's sad. It's a shame that, you know, it, that, just understanding it from that viewpoint is seen as a threat Yeah, because it's empowering to all the people. And I think that that might be part of the reason is at the time when the Romans were codifying the Bible, empowering people was not their goal. Right. And I don't think it's a goal of, of those who are in charge now either, but I think we will prevail. I do think that the people and, and, and the people individuals awakening to their divine nature and, and you know, realizing their Christ self, I I think that's what's gonna that's what's gonna change the world. I agree, and I think it's happening. Yes, it's I do hard too. to deny that there's there's some kind of a spiritual awakening going on in the world right now. I always give the example of just go to the bookstore and, and look at all the just the titles of of the books and see like there's this in huge wall of you know sometimes they call it new age or whatever they want to call it, and you know people are just learning how to meditate and yoga and, and spirituality is just taking off all over the world right now. Yeah. And it's hard to deny it. Even just like 20 years ago, it, it wasn't really like this. So it's really exciting time, I think. And it, nobody knows really where we're headed, like what, what it really means. But if we just do our part, you know, which really is just, it's on a personal level. But let me just back up, you know, the whole idea of the religions having some common bonds to me, there, there's there's two levels of, of importance and value to that. One is on the global level, where, you know, like we said, it there's less, there's no reason for us to be fighting and killing each other for religious reasons and you know, things like 9-11 and stuff like that. I think, you know, there'd be a lot less of them if the if we just recognize that the the world's religions have a lot more in common. But it also has a personal value. Because we're a lot of us are taught whatever religion we were raised in has like something where like ours is the only one that's right. And if you go and like explore, I think the word explore is in the title of my book, mm-hmm. explore things in the world, including other religions, you know, bad things are going to happen. Uh, but the, really what happens is you limit yourself. And, you know, if you don't explore, it, you're going to, you're not going to learn some things that might be valuable to you. So if you are a person who, is interested in, you know, attaining spiritual knowledge and you you want to go down the spiritual path and things like that. I think it's really valuable to be able to to not be fearful of, you know, checking out some teachings from another religion. And so I think that's part of the awakening is enabling us all to check out other other religions and find value in them. The, there's the story of the blind man and the elephant I like to tell which is, are you familiar with that one? Oh, yes. Go ahead. Okay. So 
you know, they, these blind men come up and ele- up to an elephant and it's so big that they're, they're all kind of touching different parts of the elephant. They, they start arguing over what the elephant is. One of them is touching the leg and he says, oh, it's a giant pillar. And another one is touching the tail. And he says, no, it's a broom. And they start arguing and fighting. And then a, a person, a wise man w- with eyes who can see comes by and explains to them that you're all correct. You know, it, it's not one thing or the other, that the thing you're trying to investigate is so big and you can't confine it into one particular, you can't put it in one box. So yes, that aspect of, of the elephant or God, we're going to, this is an allegory. Uh, Mm -hmm. It it does look like a, a a pillar and that aspect of God looks like a broom, but it's all connected. And really God is like, so beyond words, like, you know, we can't really put it into one, one book or one religion. But once you realize that they're all sort of describing the same thing and different aspects of the same thing, it opens the door to, to go to a, another religion who's been focusing on the tail. Right. Because so you don't want to learn about the tail a little bit, you know, perhaps the, the religion that you were, were growing up in, like, didn't really focus on the tail. It Maybe focus on the, the trunk. trunk. <laughs> right. So in, instead of like going to your rabbi and saying, can you tell me about the tail? You know, it's a lot easier to go over to whatever, you know, Hinduism, it's, and because they've been focusing on the tail for thousands of years. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. You know, you're not going to go to hell for studying or learning about other religions. That's basically the point. So again, it's helpful from a global viewpoint, and it's also helpful from a personal spiritual path viewpoint to be able to just recognize that all the religions have some commonalities and, you know, there's nothing wrong with focusing on them and exploring all of them. I think that's great. And that's probably a really great ending note, I think, for our conversation okay. today. Yeah. Gary, thanks for for being with me today. And I, I, I think this has been a really enlightening conversation and a really important one, a really Thank important you. one. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on your show. And I wish you the best. I really admire all the work you're doing. And thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.